Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has born, also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemal the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethel. Bethel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tarash, and Maka. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered to Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, as we look at your word this morning, pray that you would give us insight into it, that you would uh, guard my words as I preach, and pray that you would give us insight into our own hearts as well. We would see any place where we lack belief and lack trust in you, that we would recognize um, wherever 
you are wanting to apply your word into our life. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater vision of who you are, a greater picture of uh, your faithfulness to us. And Lord, in the light of the reality of our mortality, I pray that we would be that we serve an eternal God. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. When I was a child, young child, I had a friend who lived across the street who was about my age. And we'd sometimes play, as kids do, in the front there, in the street between our houses, myself and my siblings, him and his siblings. And then one day, when I was maybe seven, I can't quite remember exactly how old I was, he no longer came out to play. He no longer came out to play because he had suddenly died. And I don't, I'm not entirely sure why I was kind of too young to understand the medical side of, of, of what had happened. I just knew that he wouldn't be coming out to play anymore. And 30 years later, I can still remember his visitation. I can still remember the room with the orange carpet and the kind of auditorium-style tiered floor, the chairs picked up and stacked along the wall, and the coffin in front. I can remember my mom asking me if I wanted to go forward and thinking, no, I I can see enough from here. Sitting on that orange carpet in the back as she went forward and then came back and got me. I can remember people mulling around, talking and crying. Death is not something we like to deal with. In fact, it's not something that most of us have much experience dealing with, really. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it, at least not in any real or substantial way. You know, but it didn't used to be that way. People used to live out the last moments of their lives in their homes or in the homes of loved ones. Grandkids were there as their grandparents passed away. Most people experienced the loss of a child at some point. Death was much more prevalent, much more in our face. Modern medicine has helped us to keep people alive, and that's good. And that's good, and we're excited and and happy about that, and yet we've outsourced death from our living rooms and from our bedrooms to hospitals and nursing homes, and we've replaced that with movies and games where fake people die in fake, fake deaths in fake ways. So you might ask, well, what's the problem with that? That sounds a lot more enjoyable, Cody. Death is sad and inconvenient and uncomfortable. But do you notice the unintended consequence of that? The reality that death doesn't cease to exist just because we've moved it outside of our home. That very little thought is given to our sinfulness that caused death or to our need for a savior 
that not having to deal with death means our mortality has little impact on our life right now. We can pretend death isn't real until it inevitably slaps us in the face. And it will do that. And then we think, I followed you, Jesus. Where's my happiness and my comfort and my ease? I thought, I thought that's what you promised me. You see, throughout Genesis, our lesson has been that even in the midst of human rebellion, even when sin happens, God continues to keep his promises, even using our sinfulness and redirecting it to his purposes. God takes what's intended for evil and he turns it to good. And I wonder if God can do that even with death. What if death isn't a proof against God's ability to keep his promises, but an opportunity for us to lean into him, to lean into and see and receive more of his promises if our faith is in him? You see, our passage starts with this hint towards Isaac's future wife, right? And it's followed next week, we'll talk about they're coming together in marriage. But that pleasant story is interrupted. And isn't that the way that death works? Constantly interrupting our pleasant stories. That's the way death is. It's an abrupt inter- interruption to a life to life that seems out of place and disjointed because I think it is. But what I want you to see today is this, that though our lives end, God's promise continues. Though our lives may end, and they will, God's promise continues. And it will be Abraham's faith-filled response and God's sovereign orchestration of events that bring deeper significance than ever before. And so I want to look at what happens here in this story, and I want to draw some applications, some implications for ourselves. And we're going to look at this story in three parts. First, the setting, then the negotiation, and then the resolution. And we'll look at a few lessons about death. Let's start with the setting. The story is about how Sarah dies despite being a spry 127 years old, right? And she dies in in Hebron, in Canaan. And that location is important. It's going to be repeated at the end of the story as well. And it's important. It's an important location where a lot of really important things have happened in Sarah's life. Where the angel of the Lord visited her. Where she had her promised child. Where her and Abraham spent years in peace. And it says that Abraham mourned and he wept at her death. But, but there's this brief genealogy right before it, right at the beginning of our passage. And you might be thinking, Cody, why did you leave that there? I mean, the, the chapter starts with verse 1 of chapter 23, right? Like, why are you like messing with our divisions here? In reality, this genealogy, it would make more sense 
it would seem to make more sense after our story today, right before Isaac's coming together with Rebecca, right? Or maybe it would have made sense for me to tag it on to the end of last week's passage, sort of an allusion to how God will continue to, to uh, his program of blessing from Abraham into Isaac and Rebecca, and Rebecca being this new matriarch taking the place of Sarah. And while both those things are true, and while it does, it can work in that way, I kept it with this passage for this reason. Because it, it brings emphasis to our setting. That where we are in this moment when Sarah dies is Canaan, the promised land. You see, customarily a sojourner like Abraham and Sarah, it, when they died in a foreign land, in a foreign country, in this case the land of Canaan, would have gone back to their ancestral home to be buried. Traditionally, Abraham would have taken Sarah's body, he would have traveled all the way back to where he came from, pre-Genesis 12, and he would have buried Sarah there. And, and there's something of this still today, right? Like when my grandpa, uh, my grandma and grandpa moved to Arizona, when my grandpa passed away, they brought him back and they buried him with his parents in the cemetery that my great-grandpa took care of in his life, Right? right with his parents. And when my grandma passes away, the same thing will happen. And so this little note at the beginning, or, or rather, rather at the end of chapter 22, about Abraham's brother Nahor reminds us of where Abraham is from. He is not living in the place that he's from. It also indicates that Abraham knew about his ancestral home. He knew it was alive and well. He knew that his family was continuing to grow there, his extended family. And it tells us that Abraham was not there. He was near Hebron in the land of Canaan. You see, he could have gone back there to bury Sarah, but he didn't. Why? Why didn't he? Because Genesis 12 happened, right? Right? You remember Genesis 12, verse 1. God says to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abraham was not to go back, ever. God told him to leave the land of his family, to go to the land God was promising him. That land was the land of Canaan, the promised land. Abraham doesn't see his ancestral home as his ancestral home. He doesn't see it as his inheritance. No, his, his inheritance is what his heavenly father has promised him. That's his inheritance, the land of Canaan. But that land isn't his family's yet. He set out with his wife, believing the promises of God, waiting to see them fulfilled, and now his wife has died, and she never saw it finished. She never saw it fulfilled. And it makes us think about the people who have gone from our life, the things that they will never see fulfilled. So Abraham must be coming to a realization 
that he will also die not seeing it fulfilled. We have to come to the realization of the things that we won't see fulfilled in our life. And one might expect Abraham to cry out in anguish to God here, God, but you said. How many of us, when we've lost someone unexpectedly, when we prayed for healing from from cancer, from some disease or whatever it is, but that healing never came, we've wondered, why God? Why would you let this happen? Of course, that's a natural question that we ask. But even in the pain, we know that God never promised that that person would live forever. He never promised that every person would be healed. But he has made some promises. And what we do with those in that moment, in that situation, is critical. Do we lean toward God and his promises or away? You see, Abraham leans in. And so we come to the second part of the story, the negotiation. And Abraham, he rises up from, from mourning his wife and he goes to speak to the Hittites that live in the land, the, the, the people that he is living amongst. And there are a lot of words in this negotiation. And it's easy to lose track of the forest uh, for, or lose track of the forest for the trees, right? Um, but I'm going to attempt to lay it out plainly. You see, the, the negotiation, it happens in three stages. And, and you see this in... Abraham's rising and bowing, making a request, and then receiving a response. Rising and bowing, making a request, and receiving a response. It happens three times. And so stage one, we see in verse, starting in verse three, Abraham rises and he says to the Hittites. He says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He starts by stating the legal reality of who he is. He's a sojourner. He's a foreigner. He's got no property. He's merely allowed to move among them, and if he's got no property, he's got no place to bury his wife. And so he asks for a burial place, a burying place. And it literally, the term there literally means holding of a grave. And their response, it parallels his. They reply, not that he's a sojourner among them, but what do they say? No, you're a prince of God. You're no mere sojourner and foreigner amongst us. We recognize you're a prince of God. And, and they say, well, we know you have no holding of a grave, but we will withhold no grave from you. Take what you, whichever you want. And the offer is generous, but it falls short of what Abraham is asking. They offer a grave for Sarah to use, but he wants a permanent burial ground for his wife and for his family. So Abraham, you might think, would be tempted to take the offer. We might, if we were Abraham, to go, wow, that's really generous. I think I'll take that offer. But Abraham doesn't. He leans in. He leans in. Stage two of the negotiation, starting in verse seven, says Abraham rose and he bowed. And he says, you know, if you're willing, let me make this request. You said that you would withhold no grave, but, but let me be a little bit more specific here. Let, let Ephron, 
Sell me the cave at the end of his property. It's not like in the middle of his property. It's not like a major, just a, a slice with a field and the cave at the edge of his property. Let him sell that to me as a burying place. And Ephron responds, says, I'll give you the cave and the field. The narrator here and Ephron himself tell us that this happens in the sight of many witnesses, and that fact is repeated five or six times in the story. This negotiation and the eventual exchange, it's well documented. Everyone knows it's happening. But once again, this just generous response uh, we might be inclined to take. Wow, he's going to give you that burial place? That's what you want, right, Abraham? Well, not exactly. That's not exactly what he said, was it? He asked for him to sell it to him, not give it to him. Abraham wanted to buy the land, but Ephron offers it as a gift. You see, Abraham, in the presence of all of these witnesses, he doesn't want there to be any question about it, about this exchange. He doesn't want there to be any strings attached. In this ancient economy of the Hittites, a gift may at some point be retracted. A gift is temporary. Sales are final. Abraham is leaning into God's promises. So we get to stage three, and it starts in verse 12, and it says that Abraham, who's now still standing, bows, right? And he says, if you will let me, if you will just let me give you the price of the field so I can bury my dead. He insists in the politest way possible, right? I want to buy it. I don't want it as a gift. I, I want to own it. Ephron, in a way that seems funny to us, but is likely just normal, uh, polite society methodology and negotiation, says, well, what's, you know, what's 400 shekels of silver amongst you know, rich and wealthy good friends like you and me? Abraham listens, okay, let me weigh that out. 400 shekels of silver, here it is. He purchases the land. So we come to the third portion of the story, the resolution, verses 18 through 20. And this is repeated twice uh, in this, these just three verses that, that Abraham was given all that land, that whole field and the cave and all of that as a possession. The field, the cave, everything that was in it, everything that was on it is now his. It's his property and everyone was a witness to it. And so Abraham buries Sarah there. And here's the point. Prior to this moment, Abraham had been given rights to a well in the promised land, but he had never owned any of the promised land. And for the first time, he owns a field. He owns a place in the promised land, a piece of the promised land to bury his wife, for his son to bury him, for his son to be buried, etc. Rather than saying, how could you, God? I thought, 
I thought, you know, you, you told me to leave my, my land and to trust you and you were going to do all these things and we came here and we were waiting and yeah, eventually we had Isaac, but now my, my wife is dead and I'm probably uh, in my last moments and I'm never going to see this thing happen and I'm just going to take my wife, my dead wife, and I'm going to mourn all the way back to the land that I came from and I'm going to bury her there and that'll be the end of this whole thing. It didn't work, God. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't do that. Abraham holds on to and even leans into more God's promises in his most difficult and heartbreaking moment. He doesn't settle even for a free grave for his wife, but he gets a piece of the promised land. He experiences more of God's promises in that moment, not less. My guess is it bolsters his confidence that though he might not see the full fulfillment of that in his life, God will do it. And my guess is that if we were the original audience of this book, if we were Israelites, looking into the promised land and thinking that land is filled with Canaanites who will kill us. We're reading this and we're going, no, God can do it. God can give it to us. Though our lives end, God's promises will continue. And so I want to give you just a couple lessons about death for believers. A few things from this passage. First is this. Death is still a reason for mourning. Though, though God makes promises, though we can trust in him and we ought to trust in him, and though uh, all these things are true about Christ, and yet I want you to know that death is still a reason for mourning. All of this doesn't mean that death is good doesn't mean that death isn't sad. Even though we know that our, we have hope for eternity, death is still a reason to mourn. Someone we love leaves this earth. Death is a consequence of sin. We ought to mourn its existence, and we ought to mourn its experience. We ought to mourn with others while also speaking the truth of God's word and speaking the truth of God's promises. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. We mourn, but we mourn as believers. We mourn as Abraham mourned. We don't only mourn, but we lean into God's promises. The second lesson is this. Death brings God's promises into sharper focus. You see, Sarah's death, it provides an avenue for Abraham to ask for something from the Hittites that otherwise he would not have had an opportunity to request. God works to sovereignly bring all of these things about. But it starts with Abraham not turning back to the land he came from, but focusing on the promises that are ahead of him. We're tempted when tragedy strikes 
to pack it up, give in, throw our hands up, say, well, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. And oftentimes we float through our lives not considering eternity, trying to turn that off in our brain. And all the temporary things of life, they start to seem so important to us. But when we come face to face with death, it provides us an opportunity for all of life to be in crystal clear focus. To consider what really matters. To consider what seems to matter but really doesn't. Perhaps, perhaps if we would remember death more often, we'd pursue less things that don't matter and that are actually harmful to us. We'd waste less energy on conflicts that are actually way more insignificant than we want to act like they are. We'd be more thankful for every day that we have and the things that God has given us. We'd put more stock in the things that last forever. So I want to end with a fourth part to the story. Surprise, fourth part. I'm calling it the hope. You see, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it expands the nature of Abraham and Sarah's sojourning. It's not just in Canaan, but, but they are sojourners, it says, and exiles on the earth. And so too, we, God's people, who share their faith, are sojourners on this earth. We're princes of God and yet strangers and exiles here. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 through 16 says this, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, they look... They could have gone back to their homeland, but they didn't. They were looking forward to the land that God had promised. But that country wasn't a field in Canaan or all of Canaan. It was a heavenly country. Heaven come to earth for all eternity. Abraham and Sarah did not receive what was promised in this life, though they did receive parts of it. They did not receive all of it. Because God had something better in store for them, and he has something better in store for us. And here's the paradox. 
They risked the earthly because their hope was in the eternal. But in so doing, they actually received more of the earthly promises. But maybe not always in the way we might have expected or they might have expected. But it was a foretaste of those eternal promises. And in another twist, Christ's resurrection reveals that those eternal promises turn out to be far more earthy than we might expect. The fact that Christ did not stay dead, but that he rose from the grave and walked this earth again, and that because he rose from the dead, we know that we will one day rise bodily again to walk this earth in new heavens, in a new earth. And so we wait. We wait just as Abraham did. We hope for something better. For the resurrection of those who preceded us in death. Those people whom we love. Those people whom loved the Lord. We trust that we too will be resurrected. And that when that heavenly city comes down and establishes itself in the new heavens and a new earth, all will be restored. And God, you see, God doesn't give Abraham and Sarah less than he promised. He gives them more. He gives them greater. Abraham buries Sarah in the promised land near Hebron, but God will raise her into a greater promised land than they could have ever imagined, not on some cloud, but amongst the oaks of Mamre in Hebron in Canaan, where she heard the promise of the Lord where she saw him face to face, where she gave birth to a son of promise, she will see the son of promise. Here's the bottom line, guys. Though our lives end, God's promise continues. And since God's promises continue, death is not the end of our lives. It's not. Let's pray.